This is the Build Our Future podcast. We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. A window into the past, present, and future of the construction industry. There's still a lot of unlocked doors. Clarity with design, craftsmanship with the build. There's still a lot to find out and do and invent. Collaboration for our future. You know, I don't think it's the end of the invention. The Build Our Future podcast with Raul Faria. Let's build. Begins now. Welcome to the Builder Future podcast. Very happy today to have Professor Carl Haas from the University of Waterloo. I'm especially happy about this because he is from my alma mater. I graduated from civil engineering at UW. I'm not going to say the year, but it was decades ago. Professor, so happy to have you on. How are you doing this morning? I am doing great. Thank you for asking, Rahul. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. So, Tell our listeners a little bit about you, your path to get to University of Waterloo and uh, kind of what you're doing now. Okay. I grew up in the region of Waterloo. I had worked in construction in high school a bit up in northern Alberta in the summers, and I thought I would uh, get into engineering and uh, do the co-op program because that seemed pretty pretty practical. And, it sounds so familiar. Same for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I, I, I got a little mixed up and I went into systems design because I, I thought it was like industrial design. I'd be designing mountain bikes and, you know, fancy shoes and stuff. But it turned out to be more about electrical engineering and control systems. So the, the kind of decisions you make when you're 18 or 19, right? <laughs> you know what, but it's funny how things change with time as you get into the industry and your experiences change your mindset, right? Yeah, yeah. So then I, I ended up you know, going to do the co-op work terms like we all did. And I think we all did about six of those. And then I worked, gosh, for computing devices in Ottawa. I don't know if they still exist on command and control systems for platoons of battle tanks. Of all things. (laughs) (laughs) Then I ended up in Carnegie Mellon down in Pittsburgh in construction robotics for a while and got some degrees there and then ended up at University of Texas in Austin for 15 years and directed their construction program for a little bit and then came back to Canada 15 years ago. Fantastic. I'm glad to have you back, of course. Thank you. (laughs) So it's kind of funny, you know, you, you talk about how the evolution from your side happens. And I think when we were discussing a little while ago, evolution for us as students as well, and I'm talking about me personally, when I was in university, the thought of research and this, you know, it wasn't, it didn't really tickle my fancy. I don't know if that's the right way of saying it. <laughs> it uh, seemed related to the world. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and you know, now that I've been in the workforce now for for, for quite a while, I've started doing the show and started doing some research on some of the articles and concepts that not just you, but many of the other professors work on. I find that so much like so fascinating, right? Because they can be real world implications and as well conceptual designs down the line, right? For sure. I mean, that's probably what's driving a lot of profs at a place like Waterloo is you feel like you can have a real impact on practice. You can change the way things are done. And then there's the education part too. And you always feel like you're making a contribution there, bringing people a little further along. Yeah. No, like I said, and you know, one of the articles I think you worked on with a few colleagues, I'll give the official title name. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It is the usage of interface management systems in adaptive reuse of buildings. Yeah. But I found that whole... (laughs) 
article fascinating reading it. Can you share me a little bit, just an overview of what that was about? Yeah. I'm, 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 you know what? It, it came out of a little bit of an intersection of two whole different lines of research. And one whole line of research was project process analytics, and the other whole line of research was adaptive reuse for buildings. So one was kind of a management string and one was a kind of a design and, and construction method string. So it turns out that uh, there's a whole practice out there in the mega projects and complex projects industry around interface management. So managing, you got a really complex distributed bunch of stakeholders for a, a project like Metrolinx or for $10 billion offshore project. You got fabricators and engineers and construction sites that are very can be very distributed. And so there's a real complex uh, management thing around there. There's interface coordinators and interface managers. It's a whole profession. And we were working on that for a group called the Construction Industry Institute in the U.S. So we helped them develop some tools to make that work. And there are companies that sell the service, the software service. It's a workflow engines and cloud-based services that kind of help you execute all that. We were just developing some of the guidelines and some of the validation that it works. It can save you money on a mega project if you use it. Right. But then we were also doing all this uh, design for disassembly and adaptive reuse stuff. And we realized there was a real connection conceptually between those two things because we have a huge problem when we design buildings in designing. Well, we don't really worry too much about the connections. That's a, a fabricator detail issue. And we don't worry too much about being able to take those things apart. And so in interface management, where we're really talking more about connections between stakeholders from a engineering deliverables and management kind of perspective, we kind of took it pretty explicitly and talked about connections between modules and connections between assemblies. And how would you have to build that up in your BIM, building information modeling tools like Revit or some of the other tools out there? How would you, how would you have to build, it, build up the functionalities in there to be able to manage that over the long term? So, and, and make sure that you were fitting those modules together. So I, I know it, 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 it was a bit of a reach but we saw the connection. We wanted to write an article about it. And it was a little less focused than some other articles we've written. But, you know, uh, it, it's funny because normally I would have assumed that reading an article like that wouldn't be as subjective. And I'm saying that because when I was reading it, the concept of reusing and adapting existing buildings to repurpose it is actually a different form of sustainability through yes. circular economics, right? And to me, that's what I kind of gravitated towards, right? And, you know, most people don't think or don't understand fully what circular economics is, right? I'm really excited about that concept because I've always been interested in sustainability from the very beginning, but I didn't really have a, a model in my brain about how you made it work in an industry like construction or the, you know, the... Short of going green, as they say, right? Like that could be a different way, right? Yeah. So, you know, like, because sustainability for so many years was about use less energy, use less materials, you know, shrink your footprint, basically make life miserable and enjoy life less. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's all a, Some people you, enjoy that, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> 
And, you know, there's a different approach, which is that there's a, a cycle and you, you see some countries have managed that and some societies really well where, you know, say their farming system, they don't burn out their fields and they don't burn out their woodlots. They just keep them going for hundreds of years over time because yeah. they manage it in a sustainable way. But what was bothering me was we have this huge built environment with this huge amount of building stock. And our solution, it seemed, to reduce operating energy for buildings was to knock down the old buildings and build a super amazing, efficient design of a new building. Right. But when you think about that, there's a huge amount of embodied energy in the buildings that you're knocking down. And it's creating massive amounts of waste. In fact, the majority of our waste now is created by construction waste and, and building demolition waste. And there's nowhere to put it anymore. Places like Waterloo Region, we very soon we're going to be trucking that stuff to wherever they'll take it. And we're going to be paying them a lot of money. Yep. And then we're, we can't find the stuff to build those new buildings. We can't find the aggregates. We can't find water in, in some places, not Canada, but in a lot of places in the world. We can't find proper, good quality sand. Yeah, quality materials, quality. We're kind yeah. of limited to what we have uh, per region. It- yeah, so so the you know the alternative of saying okay, you know what, maybe we don't have to tear down all those buildings. Maybe we could repurpose them, we could refurbish them, we could adapt them for reuse. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, we'd use we could still make them energy efficient from an operating perspective, but we'd also use a lot less embodied energy. We wouldn't be using new concrete, new steel, new materials. We would be using as much of what was already there as possible. Yeah, and kind of just repurposing it for a new need, for a new use, right? Yeah, and, and you know, from, a, again, if you look at some societies that have been around a long time, like Japan or Europe, they will reuse a foundation over and over again, or they'll reuse a building. It'll change from a from an old warehouse in the port to a hotel to a set of offices because it was built so well that they don't need to knock it down. (laughs) That actually intrigues me because on one of my previous episodes, I had John Mullenhauer. He's the president of the Toronto Construction Association. And, And we were talking, we were talking about this concept about how buildings how long are they actually designed to last? Because that's the secondary question as well. Because we were talking about the hospital in China that just went up, you know, during the the COVID crisis, right? How it just went up like that. And he's just like, well, you know, in a year, they're just going to tear it down. So I don't know, are some of the challenges that they're not built to last last? So maybe there's more reinforcements that needed as we're repurposing? I'm not sure. Yeah, the strategies. So for me, from a research point of view, that that's great, right? We don't know the answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, like yep. one strategy is you make structural subsystems that you could take apart in the future and reuse, or you make space, a building that has a kind of a layout in the big superstructure or layout or program of space that you could repurpose just by repartitioning or changing the services or or upgrading the services. So there's ways of doing it that basically don't always require that you build everything in that building with a 500-year design life. There's ways of doing it that are kind of more, maybe more clever and a little more efficient, where you can take some of the parts away and use them somewhere else, maybe not Mm -hmm. down the street or another part of the city. But we still have to design it to, what is it, the the 100-year storm? Am I right? Yeah. Am I, yeah, am I, yeah do yeah, I recall yeah. correctly from university? <laughs> well, I would 
<laughs> I, I always admire the German model, which is, you know, to design it for the 500-year storm. <laughs> and there's some really great examples. Like you can look Europe too much for role models, right? Because they do have these beautiful old buildings and try to think of a good example. But the one we all think of is the Louvre in Paris with mm-hmm. the I am pay pyramid. And you see so many, you know, this kind of glass pyramid in the midst of this old stone palace. And all over Europe, you see these sorts of glass and steel additions to these old stone buildings. And that's kind of attractive architecturally. And it's kind of, Mm -hmm. it is reuse in a way. Mm -hmm. But in North America, we're probably going to be taking a lot of the big box stores and the old factories and the warehouses and it's not going to be as exciting but we can we still don't have to tear them all down yeah i think i think that was one i saw in montreal yeah i think it was a sugar factory wet path sugar factory that they converted into a rock climbing kind of facility I think there was one in England, uh, well, the Waterloo Railway Station, they became a oh, house of vans, oh, right? Beautiful. So, I mean, yeah. you can be pretty creative, really, when, you, when you're trying to adapt some of these places, right? Yeah, and in Kitchener, the, there's an old, I think it's well over 100 years old, I think maybe 120, Uniroyal Tire Factory on Glasgow Street. Mm-hmm. And huge, I don't know how many, like 60 or 100 and something acres, just the most massive layout of factories you've ever seen. And I forget the developer's name, but that company turned it into what they call the Catalyst Center. Mm -hmm. And the building was so old and so big that they created little townships kind of inside, little like neighborhoods. I thought that was really clever. So there's some really interesting kind of restaurants and startups and businesses in there making use of an old factory building. Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard of even like downtown Toronto, like old churches that aren't used anymore, converted into like lofts, yeah, like loft spaces and stuff. You know what I mean? So you can you can kind of reuse it, right? I mean, but are there improvements in terms of like life cycle performance that you can kind of improve as you go through it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, obviously with new technology, you can improve some of those things, but... Yeah, you can reclad, you can uh, have automated building control systems, you can have upgraded HVAC. You can do a lot of pretty cool things to make an existing building more efficient. And, and the building codes in Ontario are really driving us to make all new buildings a lot more energy efficient, like especially residential. And, you know, when you do that adaptive reuse, you know, some of it's going to be upgrade. Some of it's going to be refurbishment. Yeah. But are there any challenges? Because, I, I mean, as a, as a contractor, I think one of the first challenges... I can foresee clients having is the almighty dollar, right? Because it's the the challenge of the unforeseen, right? Oh, if I open this, I hope they did it well in behind wherever, whichever wall or framing or something, right? Yeah, yeah. We've been working a lot on that, like the hidden problems and the risks around that. So you kind of got to be a, you got to have an incredibly high risk tolerance to take on a project like that. And, and that's not good for the, strategy over time. So there's got to be, you know, we're trying to develop ways of doing non-destructive evaluation and building characterization geometrically and all the things that you would have to do to make good decisions about what to take out, what to keep and how to do it, you know, what trade's going to be involved. And But, you know, there's some business models to that too. Like it just doesn't have to be a, a technical approach. The, the Dutch have a deal where they they kind of put that out on 
some website like Kijiji or something. They say, here's the building, here's all the, all the crap in the building. And who wants it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you know, if you can, it's going to cost us this amount of money to demolish this part of the building. If you're willing to do it for less, you can have whatever you take out. And there's people who bid on, you know, they have some idea they could reuse the tiles because they have a nice patina. Right. And they come in and they, they disassemble it in a way that you would never bother with as a demolition contractor. <laughs> yeah, a sledgehammer, right? <laughs> yeah, you're just going to go in there with impact devices yeah. <laughs> and, or a big backhoe with a shear on the end of it and, and just tear the crap out of the whole place. Yeah. I mean, I think you touched on it a little bit earlier um, in terms of the interface uh, management systems, but how important is it to kind of make sure all parties are on the same page? Because I think that might be one of the biggest challenges with trying to adapt a new building for repurpose a new building, right? Just keeping yeah. everyone in the loop with the decisions and everything else. Yeah, that's a really good question. The reason we thought interface management, another reason we thought it applied to adaptive reuse projects was it's used for complicated or complex projects. And whatever your definition of complex is, sometimes that means it's just big. Sometimes it means there's a lot of stakeholders. Sometimes it means there's a lot of risk that you can't quantify or you know mitigate. And so, and, and it is about getting alignment and it is about controlling deliverables but making the big decision at the beginning or the investment decisions require a lot of sophistication around value of information. How much are you willing to pay for some information that would help you make a better decision about what to do with that building? And, you know, so there's that technical part too. I mean, can you simplify it? Because it's from my perspective, I mean, everything you're saying kind of leads down to one real simple kind of thing, but I guess really challenging to do in a business environment for whatever reason. And it's that everyone needs to have an open book policy, <laughs> kind of be transparent. Oh, about. Yeah. I, you, you know what I mean? Like, is it as simple as that? Because I know there are a lot of layers to that, obviously, but. Yeah, that's a really good point. Cause like the, another solution to complex projects has been something that came out. I think it came out of California originally is the contract structure called integrated project delivery. Mm -hmm. IPD. IPD, yeah. It's gaining steam here a lot more. I've seen a lot yeah. more yeah, companies do yeah. that. Yeah, and one of, one of the way, you, so you're right, it's an open book. You, you know, the books, your books are open, your risk is shared, your rewards are shared. And there's also like some technical elements that make it possible. You have a shared, typically a shared building information model, a 3D model on some cloud-based service that allows everybody to add information and extract whatever information or analysis they need from that model. And, you know, it's mostly used for new construction, but I could see it being used for refurbishment and adaptive reuse projects because, you know, you'd want to build up that model and you'd want to say here on the map of the building is like on the old maps of the world where nobody knows what's over there, right? <laughs> Nobody's been to that other side of the ocean. We think that you just fall off the end. We're pretty sure. <laughs> I was just going to say yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, monsters, what is it? Uh, yeah. Exist there or whatever. But yeah. So, you know, maybe uh, when you're refurbishing or you're adaptively reusing a building, you want to build up that information model and share it. And mm -hmm. in some places you're going to go in with a, I could get crazier. You go in with a, a robot. It, it uses simultaneous localization and, and modeling, and it, and it builds you a 3D model uh, on the fly. 
you know, that's the basis of your BIM. And actually that's feasible today. It's only going to be superficial. It's not going to tell you what's underneath behind the the wall, what the wall system. No, ex- no excavation yet. <laughs> yeah. What, you know, whether your water pipes are, maybe they're not leaking now, but maybe if you add a few pounds of pressure, they're going to start spraying everywhere. Right. So mm-hmm. it won't tell you things like that. It won't tell you about abandoned electrical lines and service lines, but it would give you a volume estimate, help you estimate volumes. And then, you know, a lot of buildings have repetitive elements. So you could start doing some investigation about repetitive subsystems and start making some inferences. So you, you can do some pretty neat things. Yeah. You can dig in and, you know, just like a core sample in the dirt. Yep. I don't know why you can't do the equivalent of a core sample in an old building into the wall and send your little, uh, what do you call it? The, you know what they say, right? As long as you got the stamp that you can core in that location, not yeah, just yeah, yeah, okay. so, yeah. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> fiber optic imaging. I mean, you mm-hmm. can you can send a camera in behind a wall. Oh, you, can. you can you can use all sorts of ground penetrating radar for walls instead. There's yep. lots of tools you can use, and you can yeah. rip out sections. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. you. I mean, I say that even on some of the smaller renovations, right? You know, even like when when we were doing residential and they want to got, got a place like, what do you think about this? Is it load bearing? I was like, I'm quite sure it is. Well, we can just cut open a two foot section and check. Right, right. I mean, and then uh, right? you know, what's the cost? We'll yeah, we'll put the drywall back in and we'll, and we'll, we'll fix it, right? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know you you've talked about the concept being more in like complex and large jobs, but. Do you think it could be used? It could be used on smaller projects as well. I think so, right? Well, that was our idea. You know, that's and and you know, this is just one area of the research I'm working on. But you know, that was the one idea we had. Mm-hmm. Some people would argue that there's places where you could have a bigger benefit. You could do like a project definition rating index for these kinds of projects, and that would mm-hmm. be more a better way to manage your risk. So right. you could have a a list of elements of things that come up on those kinds of projects and you would want to get some definition around those elements to mitigate your risks. Is, is there asbestos, you know, is, is that the kind of building of the vintage that might have it? Is it brownfield? Do you need to look for like stuff that's been buried 50 or 60 years ago nearby? And when was the, when were the water lines done? Is yeah. it lead? Is it not? What kind of permits do you need? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Were there permits? No, just <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And are there any drawings at all? Yeah, I I hear you. Do, do you see this hap like this repurposing of buildings happening more and more nowadays? Have you? Is that was one of the interests why you wanted to look into it? In the Waterloo region, we see it, and one of the things we look absolutely seeing it a huge amount. One of the things we were really curious about is if you say if you look at a regional economy. If you're doing more adaptive reuse and more refurbishment, so you're replacing new build with adaptive reuse, Mm -hmm. what happens to your economy in the region? And we did some input-output analysis for the whole region, so some economic modeling. What we figured out was you're going to add a lot of skilled labor. You're going to have a lot of value added in professional services, and you're going to be importing fewer raw resources into the region. And so we saw that as attractive to some regions, like some urban regions are going to really like that. If you're a mining district in Northern Ontario, you might not like that, right? Because you might depend on raw resource uh, recovery. 
or mm-hmm. logging or something like that. But in a region like Waterloo or regions of Toronto, economically, it's going to add more value to your region to do adaptive reuse than to do new build. Yeah. And I also think in more dense space, I think Kitchener-Waterloo is becoming pretty dense now. Yeah, it's becoming really densified. Yeah. You know, but even if you look, you know, like Toronto, downtown and the GTA as a whole, like this, there's such a premium on land. That's why land values are going up so much. So, I mean, the only way to get new, whatever, museums, this, that, whatever people want short of just tearing something down completely and rebuilding it yeah. is something like this so that you're not going through the whole process of demolishing, shoring this. And, yeah. Right? And at some point, nobody's going to take our waste. We're lucky we live in a, in a continent, in a part of the continent that's got a lot of room. But at some point, our waste management facilities in this region are going to be exhausted within five or 10 years. And so if you've got major volumetric waste, you're going to have to pay to haul it away. And that's mm-hmm. going to change the economics around the project pretty radically too. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a loaded question, but I'll ask you it anyway. Do you think or do you feel like some of the powers that be, like the politicians, like do you, feel, do you find like their mindsets are changing with this to try and not just... I mean, they can spin it whichever they want in terms of, you know, promoting growth and stuff, but changing some of the rules or adding incentives to kind of repurpose some buildings. Do you see that changing a little bit or is, or does something else kind of need to change in order to promote this concept a little bit more? There's probably some policy changes you could make that within which there would be good competition and, and efficiency. Mm-hmm. And sometimes policy changes can take a clear public benefit and borrow from that anticipated clear public benefit and give back some cash today to Mm -hmm. somebody doing a project. And that would be good for everybody. And then the other way to do it is just just to rely on the evolution of energy costs and, and dumping costs and let entrepreneurs have their way Mm-hmm. And realize that at some point that uh, new build actually isn't cheaper. But the problem with that is it's not always going to be, it might look cheaper, but that's because they get to externalize the costs of all that waste. Society bear, bears those costs in terms of carbon, in terms of you know air pollutants, in terms of use of water, which is underpriced. So, yeah. you know, they're getting all those costs free or very low, you know, below the actual price to society. So maybe, yeah, you could reprice some of those things and maybe even make them more fair. And then you might get more refurbishment and adaptive reuse just by, you know, making the rules more fair for everybody. Without having to leave any ships docked in foreign countries waiting for it. (laughs) That's a different conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Where was that in the Philippines? I'm trying to remember, but it, but it wasn't that. I think it was the filming. Yeah, yeah, the plastic. They didn't want to, and a company shipped it there, and then we had to bring it back. But it goes to what you were saying earlier, that that the space that we have here, not just provincially, but maybe as a country, is being, it's limited for waste on how we're going to just dispose of it, right? Yeah, I I mean, I believe that because, you know, you could say, just look how hard it is to get, to find a place to put, nuclear fuel waste yeah 
at a certain point, people just refuse to take it. Yeah. You can't haul it away far enough. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or put it underwater because so, it's really underwater, yeah, right? Yeah, you can't burn it. You can't, you can't you burn know, it. You can't it's got a continuous power and yeah. there are a lot of, a lot of checks. Uh, so checks. Maybe some good reasons to cut and some good long-term economic strength and sustainability reasons So, yeah. to, you know, to, to move toward a circular economy. It, it's, yeah. it's probably going to be cleaner. It's probably going to be more sustainable. We might be happier. You know what? I, I think that if the concept of repurposing, you know, even in this circular economy takes hold more on a, on a smaller level, because, you know, as they say, you know, if you look at the big jobs and the people with the IPDs that are doing the massive jobs, they're like one-offs, but they're big ticket items. But then you look at the smaller companies, the sheer volume of those can add up in a hurry, right? Oh, yeah. And and there's some good sort of commercial models to sort of encourage reuse in the construction industry at the very small level. They're called materials markets. There's always been materials markets. You can always take your old doors from your house and your windows and take them over to Goodwill or to some other place and somebody will pick them up if they need them or can use them or you can sell them on Kijiji or whatever the the current hot online thing is. You know, it's funny. My my friend got a window, restained it, and for my wedding, put photos of us in, in each in each window pane. And it's a beautiful so, picture frame. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and so there's there's these online materials markets now, which kind of make it a tiny bit more sophisticated and, and mm-hmm. you can go a little up chain. So, yeah. they, you know, you actually see some nice pictures. You might even see a 3D scan so you can yep. make sure it's going to fit. You might have some uh, materials passport with it that tells you that it it's had some tests done and they've been verified. It's not contaminated or it'll bear a certain load. And these are kind of getting more and more popular. So, you know, you can see where you might get to the point where you could have, say, long-term. So right now that makes sense for small contractors. But long-term, you can see where if you could disassemble, say, structural subsystems like a steel assembly, and you could put it on this site, and it did have its specs along with it, like a materials passport, that somebody's automated design program could, looking for materials within a hundred mile radius or units that could bear that load, you know, would find it and pop it into your model and say, here's an option. It looks weird, you know, <laughs> but it would be cheaper than have than buying yourself a new open web truss, right? You know, that's the kind of research we like to have fun with. Well, that, you know, it's funny you said that because I think I mentioned to you one of the article, another article that you worked on was the risk mitigation for modular construction. Modular construction is all the rage. Do you think if, because we seem to be going in that full direction with modular construction. That's going to be a huge part of it. Prefabrication is going to take the construction industry. Do you think going to that modular construction would help repurposing down the line, like 10, 20 years down the line? You know what I mean? Yeah, because you you can reconfigure it. If you design it well, you can deconstruct it or disassemble it if you design it well. If you design it well, yeah. Commercial products coming out like from Zed Modular here in Kitchener that do that kind of thing. where It's entirely for that purpose that you can reconfigure, reuse, disassemble. And it's not like... Ikea, where you can put it together, but you can't take it apart. (laughs) And and one of the things that's made that possible is a whole area of research that we worked on for the last 20 years. And that's 
three-dimensional tolerance control and mm-hmm. dimensional control. And there's a lot around 3D scanning and 3D control. So if you have a 3D model mm-hmm. and you have a 3D scanner, you can, as you're building that assembly or module, very easily and quickly check that you're doing it right mm-hmm. and absolutely guarantee that you're delivering it correctly. And there's a, a company, a, a full disclosure, so it's a conflict of interest, I guess, or a, a Glove Systems in Kitchener that markets that functionality. Mm-hmm. So I think the general idea of being able to really control the dimensionality of the module has been one of the huge factors in making modularization explode in the last five or 10 years. Because originally the big problem, there's always drivers for modularization for the last hundred years, but the things that were against it were shipping costs and things didn't fit. They didn't mm-hmm. fit when you got them to the site, right? Yeah. They were custom built, quote yeah, unquote. And, and also <laughs> extra you know, reinforcement for shipping, yeah. which was a waste of materials. And there's all these things mitigating against it. But what was mitigating for it was it was cheaper to build in a factory setting. It was more controllable. There were advantages from a schedule point of view. You could be building the superstructure while you were building the, the foundation just in two different places. There were a lot of advantages to it, but it, it never really caught on that big. Oh, and, and also it was ugly most of the time, right? Like if it was residential. But now with 3D design, you can easily customize. You can put a, throw on a new external cladding. You can reconfigure. So there's a lot of, I, I think the, the 3D design, the 3D scanning and dimensional control are making modularization and prefabrication a much bigger part of the industry. And when that becomes a bigger part of the industry, it's going to make adaptive reuse and circular economy more real. I think so. I just had a branch technology. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're in, uh, in Georgia. Name, but I don't think and, I can, uh, yeah. So, I mean, they do 3D. 3D printing, like large scale. Oh, yeah. Basically, they can print as large as a shipping container can take. It was just a, you know, they have a proprietary polymer. So, and it's just scratching the surface, right? Because everyone thought, oh, 3D printing, can you imagine the size well, of the could they print it in like Lego units? I mean, not Lego yeah. Specific, yeah. explicitly, but could they print it in units that you yeah. can snap together and actually undo as well? Undo as well, right? Uh, it's only scratching the scr- scratching the surface right now with that, right? I mean, you were talking just now about how twenty years you've been researching, you know, that concept. What are you researching on, like these days, and uh, obviously, like implications now, but also you know, future <laughs> concepts that may or may not hit because <laughs> you you know you just don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. One interesting area we're working on, which we haven't touched on in this conversation, is biomechanics around craft workers. So for example, masons. Masons, a lot of craft workers, let's not take masons in particular, can really get a lot of musculoskeletal disorders. They can basically wear out their shoulders and their elbows and their knees and their back pretty early in their career because the work is rough, the angles are rough, and maybe they might not be trained that well. So there's that novice mason risk hump, right? Where you're you're doing it carefully for the first year. You're trying to keep up with the journeyman by the time you're in third year because you want to keep up. You want to you want to put down that many masonry units in the same amount of time. <laughs> yep. And you start doing things to your body that are really stupid, like a, a hockey player that doesn't know how to go into the corner hard or a golfer hitting the ball wrong 
you know, eventually you're, you're going to end your body, right? And then you got masons who are older that really are very efficient. And what we've done is we've put these motion suits on masons and we've had them build walls, 80 different walls in different ways. And we've got terabytes of data on their motions. So we can actually sort of just play back their motion with a kind of a stick figure. And we can show you what were all the loads on the joints continuously while they were doing the work. So we can analyze all that. We can tell you certain types of motions and certain poses are putting more loads on their joints than they need to. And some people, like some of these master masons, somehow manage to be twice as productive and put less load on their joints. And it's all kind of muscle memory muscle. for them, right? It's all skill. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's all skill. If you ask them to explain it, they'll say, what do you mean? This is just how you do it. So, so we're trying to sort of uh, use some AI, frankly, some artificial mm-hmm. intelligence to pull out that knowledge and create some training tools using some augmented reality and some other stuff so that Masons could come into the concrete masonry design center in Toronto and they could get where they get trained for their for their trade and they could kind of like a golf simulator they could go in there and they could learn how to do it a little bit easier on their body and in a way that's still pretty productive we're really excited about that and we like that idea but you know we're also looking at things like self-leveling pallets and exoskeletons and you know things that could help you help actually reduce the load on your body it's not rocket science right but just yeah. other ways and so that's pretty cool and that's awesome use robotics <laughs> that's fascinating i mean i'd be remiss not to bring it back to you know uw yeah it's all happening there yeah i know right how's the program going oh we're so excited we have a a new program that we started two years ago called Archit- architectural yeah, engineering, engineering. Yeah. And it's really cool because the architecture school partly delivers it and the Department of Civil, Environmental and Architectural and Geological Engineering, which is also partly delivers it. And they, you know, they kind of understand structural design. They understand building systems, building forensics, but they also understand design from an architectural perspective, you know, studio design and programming and from an architectural perspective. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's been a really hot program. It's exciting. It's unique. It, I don't think there's anything like it in the world. There mm-hmm. is architectural engineering elsewhere in the world, but it either is in the architecture school or in the engineering. It's not like a collab between, a collaboration between both. Yeah. So, and that's attracted a lot of enrollment and uh, a lot of competition really quickly. And I think that would kind of play a role in in kind of this aging infrastructure. Oh, because yeah. I think even when I was in school, a couple of my, my friends to this day, they, I think at that point, it was either called building sciences or forensic engineering. And there's a lot of things around it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things around it, right? So that's awesome. That's uh, that's yeah, pretty you're, fantastic. You're going to be the ones designing all this uh, design for disassembly or zero carbon buildings or energy neutral buildings. They're, they're the ones doing all this kind of cool stuff, but also buildings that look nice. Yeah. Like to be in. And they still have the co-op program and everything. So they can do it. And we still have a very robust civil department and a very robust uh, environmental engineering and geological engineering programs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're in a, we got a early career faculty. 
I love the program, especially the co-op. And yeah. I mean, that's how I got into the construction side of things as opposed to the the design side of things, right? Like I got to try, like put my feet into a lot of different different spots. Find what you really, where your passion is, right? Yeah. Find, yeah. Find where you're good, where, you know, where you can bring your talents to bear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think co-op's the way to go. I think so. And, you know, but we're also like expanding MEng, like master's engineering. And that's also kind of an opportunity to come back and, and re-educate at a certain point in your career. Mm-hmm. But when I say come back, we're trying to make it more online so that you don't have, you can work full-time as well. Right, right. More online course. I guess it's yeah, the way right now, yeah, right? We're, just... we're getting really good at that. <laughs> well, we're kind of forced to, right? <laughs> yeah, it's been a hellacious uh, summer for uh, some of our amazing profs, you know, who've just absolutely been slammed and, and just worked so hard on delivering these courses online. And they've done some really innovative and creative stuff. Like right. they've had the students doing collaborative work, you know, and publishing together. And we've got student teams, studio design teams who are doing their projects from different countries. And if you think about that, that was unimaginable five or 10 or 20 years ago. I guess with the cloud now and with technology, I guess they're all, all everything's in one spot. Collaborating on their designs online and they're, and they're doing really good work. That's amazing. Yeah. And yeah, you know, facilitating that wasn't trivial, but, uh, but I think the people who taught this summer really did a great job. That's awesome. So if any of our listeners were interested in these articles that, you know, you're publishing and what you're working on, you know, where can they find it? I know I've done tons of research on it, but if they wanted to find out what you were working on, because like I said, I'm reading some of the stuff and I'm finding it so intriguing and fascinating, right? And how it can, how it is playing a role, not just today, but you can see it, not even like in the distant future, in the near future, how it's going to have like play a vital role for us. Well, that's a really good point. There's different ways of kind of accessing that. One way, if you, if you just can get on the internet, one way is looking at Google Scholar. And then you put in the name of the person. And then you'll see a list of what they've been working on lately. Oh, cool. and, and then at least you can get at the abstracts. If you can't get any deeper, you might have to ask the person to send you a copy of the article. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of getting at it. So Google Scholar and the, and the name of the person. Yeah, you just, I don't know if you've tried that. There's another website, I think, that's basically a library of, of everyone's stuff. I mean, you do have to pay for the article, or the massive article. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, that's, I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember the name of that. But yeah, I mean, there, there, are, a few, there are a few options, right? Yeah, sorry, I, I'm forgetting the name too, because there, there is some other ones. But then another way kind of, if you say you're uh, running a business and you're pretty busy, I mean, that is one good way that I just described, frankly. And, and another good way is to go to some of these conferences like modularization and offsite construction. It's been held out in Edmonton and Banff year after year for the last 10 years or so. And it's mostly industry people, but there's some academics there. And there's a lot of what's happening going, you know, and... And we did one actually a couple of years ago called ISARC that had a lot of industry participation along with them. It, it, International Symposium for Automation, Robotics, and Construction. So some of the, like, of course, you can go to the more of the trade conferences or the trade shows. And I'm trying to think uh, Ontario Construction Secretariat has a good one, right? And there's some 
really, and, and they'll have some good talks from that are really interesting. But if you really want to see stuff that's maybe a little bit further upstream that you might want to anticipate is coming downstream <laughs> at some point, <laughs> then, you, then you can go to some of these small kind of conferences that are mixes between the industry and the academia. Or they can go to the UWaterloo website and Google your and put your yeah, name in. I there. think it gives a full list of everything you've ever published. It's painfully uh, exhaustive, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, this has been uh, fantastic, Professor Haas. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm I'm loving some of the stuff that you know you and your colleagues are working on, and you know, hoping to read up on more articles coming up in the future. Oh, thanks, Rahul. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I think the construction industry is just going through a tipping point. So we will see a lot more prefabrication, modularization, and circular economy type stuff in the next years, a lot more. I actually think since doing the podcast, you know, a lot of these concepts, people are actually already doing out there. Yes. And it's only, for whatever reason, only in the last few years, construction, which is slow and, you know, that's the popular thing. But now they seem to be really gravitating to the IPDs and circular, you know, like yeah. this, these kind of concepts. And they're really grabbing onto it and running with it right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Well, Professor Haas, thank you so much for your time. It's been so fascinating talking to you about where your initial concepts come from and, you know, what you're talking and looking for downstream in our construction industry and practical application purposes as well. I'm sure our listeners have gained some valuable knowledge on a different form of sustainability and how we can use circular economics to promote that and reduce costs going forward. I would love it if you shared this show with somebody who was interested in doing a different style and just learning more about it and definitely reach out to Professor Haas. He's, uh, he's been more than generous with his time and I'm sure he will be with you as well for anything uh, people are looking forward to, to moving forward. Next week, we're joined by another fellow University of Waterloo engineering graduate. He's actually a classmate of mine. We graduated together back in the day and it's fascinating to see where his career path has taken him. Uh, John Morton joins us from Greystone Construction Management, talking about the challenges of building Muskoka, challenges of bringing that service, that quality, uh, that attention to detail up in spread out community, shall we say, and how they're attracting talent to build on an already strong foundation.